Yeah, so everyone, I'm here today with a man that truly defines. This is the definition of the living legend. <laughs> Thank uh, a you giant, very much. <laughs> a giant figure in the aquarium hobby, in the aquarium industry, uh, and beyond, and beyond. Thank and, you. Thank you very much. Uh, if, you, if you don't know uh, who Mr. Heiko Blair is, and you know, there's many newcomers to the hobby all the time, uh, especially the time. In, the social, in the social media age yes. that we're in. They're coming into uh, high-level aquarium keeping, and they're keeping fish like uh, the Rummy Nose Tetra. They're keeping plants like the Amazon Sword. Uh, they're keeping fish like the Cardinal Tetra, which we're going to talk about. And uh, they don't even understand that the, the second name and the scientific name, Blair Eye, is the work of the legendary Heiko Blair. Heiko, Thank welcome. You. Thank to you very Aquarium much. Everything podcast. It's Thank an honor. You. And it's a big, this is a big deal to me, to be perfectly honest. It's a big deal because, uh, you know, I've been in the hobby and in the industry for some years now myself. And so I know this history before internet, uh, before uh everybody's seeing everything all the time and so yes. the the work that you've done over the past many decades uh is some of the most vital and uh important and some of the most significant contributions to the hobby and the industry and like i say and beyond because i think there's a broader environmental uh mission and what you've yes. done too yes. in your work that's uh more important Definitely. now maybe than ever before right so, very right uh, normally i i don't like to do the normal uh interview sequence of uh getting the whole background but you know because i think there's a lot of young people entering the hobby today and either, even just people that don't know the history uh and the significance uh could you give us just a just a brief background on sure uh, why not yeah you know first of all um i do this as long as i can remember no? when my mother took me with four to africa with seven eight nine ten to the amazon and my grandfather he already started with this and had the largest ornamental fish uh nursery and aquarium plant nursery in the year 1900. I mean, that's 122 wow. years ago. And it went on to my mother, and my mother naturally, with all her expeditions, took me into it from my youth. And it's very interesting, uh, I have to mention, because my grandfather had four children, and my mother was the only one who followed his footsteps. And my mother had four children, and I'm the only one following her footsteps. So now I have a daughter, which was born exactly 100 years after my mother, her grandmother. So I gave her the same name. So her name is Amanda Flora Blair, but she's now 12 years 
and she has made with me already six expeditions and she wants to do more but because of family problems and separations it's the moment it's at a standstill but anyhow i have had the advantage to grow into this and then i was in the united states in florida uh, for two years working at at the time i think it was the largest uh, fish farm in America, maybe in the world, gold fish farm run by Ross Sokolov, which I think some of you know, he was also a real legend and a very, 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 very good person. Ross was like a father to me. And um, at these two years I worked at his farm, which then went over to Axelrod, he uh, told me I can go to the university at nighttime. So I did two years study of ichthyology, limnology, oceanography, and parasitology at the University of South Florida. But you know, the people at the university, they told me, you have not registered, you have not uh, gotten uh, the permit and everything else. And I said, look, I'm not interested and do not want a doctor title. Because if I want a doctor title, I can buy it on the internet anytime I want. Like I know people who did. For $5,000, you have a doctor title. Anyhow, I, was, I said, I want to learn and I want to exist all the classes. And I said, okay, if it's on your own, you can come. So I was there two years and I went every day from five to 10. And, uh, you know, after that, I, I really said no more for the rest of my life. I will work for anyone. I will have, even if I have it very hard, I do my own. And I went collecting and I started my company, Aquarium Rio, which existed for 33 years. I had it first in Rio de Janeiro. This is why it was called Aquarium Rio. And I was every single month collecting fish within Brazil, in parts of South America. I brought them to Rio, I acclimatized them, and I sold them to 89 countries in the world. But after two years, <laughs> most of the importers had not paid me. They always said the fish were dead, you know. So I said, I have to move to where the biggest airport is. And already there, and I think until today, the biggest airport is in Frankfurt. And uh, I moved there, and I opened my company there, and I, I sold fish from there all over the world, bringing them from every part of the planet, Africa, Asia, Australasia, from every and I went all on these expeditions myself because I think uh, it's now a little over eight thousand freshwater fish species are introduced into the hobby. Wow. So many many of these fishes you have today is from those I brought. My advantage was always and still is today. I just came back from a fantastic expedition uh, ten days ago that I go to places where no one else goes. I go to such remote places, which is very, very difficult and naturally very costly. So in the last 
decade or so, I take one or two friends with me to share cost because I have never done an expedition that costs less than $10,000 and uh, some of them even more because you have to charter a plane, you have to charter a boat, you have to get uh, special vehicles um, and permits. And naturally, it's more and more difficult to get the right permits. This is the biggest problem of all. In any event, I, uh, in 97, I um, moved out of uh, my company. I sold it, actually. I closed it. I said, for the rest of my life, I had already published uh, several books I published the first big book on discus in 1982, but then I, I have written, you can see it on my website, I have written thousands of articles about ornamental fish and about the environment and about collecting and so on, water parameters, etc. But then I started to do five very, very big books. And the first one was Blair's Discus Volume 1. It maybe is the wrong title because I, I have written the entire history of the Amazon. I was uh, the Brazilian government wrote to me and they said no one in history has written so much and so many details about the Amazon as you. And most of the Amazon is in Brazil, as you know. No? And uh, in the meanwhile, that was the translated in 13 languages, uh, also online. Uh, and then I did volume two, and I'm still working on my volume three, which will finalize the history of discus. But then I wrote other books, and I wrote this very big book on uh, biotopes, for instance. In the meanwhile, this is the most sold books of all, because it's uh, in seven languages and I sell it every day all over the world. It has, um, it has about 50 of my, uh, no, not 50, more than 50, uh, at least a few percent of my expeditions. I completed last month my 981st expedition. So I'm coming close to a thousand. And that's in 223 countries. Many, many wow. people don't don't realize that the planet, uh, on the planet, we have 240 countries. I mean, that's governments. That's, uh, it's not what you find in the internet. They will tell you there's only 198. This is not true. There's, these countries have their own identity, they have their own visa, their own passports, and uh, I have been in most of them, actually. All the big ones also, uh, except Mongolia. I still need to go to Mongolia. I'm doing this next year. But doing so many expeditions, I do an average of at least 10 every year. This year it's 11, last year it was also 11. But some years it was even 16, because all of my expeditions are in, in the turn of 8 to 14 days. This is the advantage of today's transport, except for the year 2020 pandemic. Every plane was on the ground. There was no plane yeah. flying. Yeah. Uh, 
it's but every year else I have done so many expeditions and I always go to what I said earlier to the places where no one goes but right. doing these many expeditions and bringing back so many fish uh, today it is more difficult than it was in the past simply because there's not so many people anymore interested in rare fishes at least in some parts they have you know, the masses of fishes have taken over. Uh, I mean, you know, like in Walmarts, you will not find any rare or different fish. You find 20 species, that's it. And uh, mostly not in good conditions also. But anyhow, uh, there are shops, especially in Europe and even in now in China, probably more than anywhere else, because I am invited every year to China, except for this year and except for last two years. The last time I was in China invited was 2019. But before that, I was invited all, almost yearly. And uh, they have aquarium shops. They are just out of this world. I know. The, yeah, the scene is, is massive there. This is incredible. And they care for it. Sure. You yes. know, I, I brought in my handbag 40 books of biotopes in English. And hardly anyone reads English in China. In one hour, I had them all sold, and that was for four, four days uh, exhibit. They are crazy. They are really crazy for. <laughs> they, are, they are. I would say today, the aquarium hobby is more evolved in China than it was in Europe in the fifties, fifties yeah. and sixties. I mean, there's always and, been an Asian. Asian cultures have always had a passion for aquariums. Yes, but yes, and they, uh, yeah. So a lot so of anyhow, questions come to mind from all of this. I go ahead. Uh, yeah. But a couple of things that I just want to establish for uh, maybe even primarily for the, the newer hobbyists people. or the people Hobbyist. newer to this thing uh, sure. is uh, there's two, two specific species, one a fish. And so this is, you know, what we call the rummy nose Tetra. So, could you because this is obviously this, with the popularity of things like keeping discus, which a rummy nose tetra yes. is often a tank made, a aquascapes, etc. What what is this? What is this story? Okay, uh, the story in a long story to make it short is that in two thousand and twenty-eight, and nineteen twenty-eight, a German owl described a fish, which from then on was called rummy nose, and that was. Hemigrammus rhodostomus, rhodostomus. Today it's in the genus Pedidella. And I was in 65, I mean, this was a fish found by uh, collectors, German collectors, and the German uh, scientists described it as rhodostomus, and the Americans named it Ruminos tetra. It was found in the area of Belém. It only lives near the mouth of the Amazon River but in fresh water, naturally. And it's a swarming fish, a schooling fish. In 65 is when I first started to collect and import fish from Manaus to my establishment in Rio. I went up, and I actually wrote several times about this, and I came up to a river called Jufaris, which is also a blackwater river, and it's the affluent of the... Uh, Rio Negro, largest blackwater river of the world. 
And uh, I found this fish there, which then the exporters in Manaus told me, but this is a ruminous tetra. I said, no, this is a different fish. It schools different, has much more color. The tail is smaller. The color of the tail is different. And it has this bright red color and it goes from the mouth all the way along the sides up until near the dorsal fin. So that alone already makes it very different. Beside this, it is a fantastic schooling fish because I showed for the first time some years ago 500 of them in one aquarium. And I did it again at Interzoo 2018. They swim around like this all the time, nonstop, nonstop, day and night. And the people see this and they just can't believe it. They look at it nonstop. So a friend of mine did put 1,000 in an aquarium. You should see the video. If you put 1,000 of these in an aquarium, it's out of the sight. It's breathtaking. The third species in this group is called formerly Petitella, Georgia, and it's only found in the very upper Amazon River region in the Marañón and its affluence. And this is the largest of the three. I mean, Jacques Jerry described all of these, except the first, which was done by Al. And uh, the third one is the largest of all, but it has the least ruminose, practically none. And it has a black stripe on the side. So there are still aquarists that mix this up. But if they get it from Peru, they definitely get only Petitella Georgia. If they get it from Manaus, they, they only get Hemigramus blairi. And if they get it from Belém, they only get Rhodostomus. But so, they all three now, some scientists, I think two years ago, decided they should all be in one genus. So they're all three now called Petitella, Petitella Georgia, Petitella Blairi, and Petitella oh. Rhodostomus. Okay, well that well that so that's quite a revision of the yeah the countless. The, I don't know. You know, sometimes you cannot uh, interfere in the work of scientists. But he found characters which, I mean, the, the fish has been in the aquarium hobby often confused. So having it in one genus now. It probably is is more intelligent. I, I'm sure. in favor for it. Sure. Now there's been there was a recent period here too, just on the on the topic of that fish, uh, where we were unable to get them for a pretty long period of time. They seemed to be a supplier suddenly could not get them. Uh, is there was is there a clear reason for that that you're aware of or I think. First of all, the biggest exporter from Manaus, he closed down. But there are other people in Manaus, and they have to, can only get this fish from Manaus. Now, I have to add that I found the same species, Blairi, in affluence of the upper Orinoco River. This was actually only this millennium. And wow. at, at that time, this fish was in literature of Colombian people and the Colombian government was written as Hemigramus rhodostomus. 
and I made them aware that they are doing a big error. That's that's the fish which is found in the Rio Negro system. And all of this was actually connected. It's all black water. The fish only comes from black water. And the one from Colombia, affluence of the Rio Negro, upper Rio Negro, and of the Rio Inirida, it's all black water. This is the same fish. You can see the difference between the one from Brazil by the tail. In, interestingly, the one shipped out of Colombia is always shipped out of Rodostomus. The, the, the exporters still, after uh, after about 100 years, use the same name. They are shipped out as Rodostomus, but they are blary. You can see them immediately. They have the same rent. They have all the same characters except in the tail between the white and black stripes. They have a yellow spot. So mm. that's the only difference. Yeah. But they yeah. should be able to get them as Rhodostomus from Bogota. They should be able to get them as, uh, I think, as Blairy from Manaus. But this is the only two places you can get them. The this is still a, still a fish that's, that's uh, rel- you know, it's abundant. The numbers are still good in the wild, yes, you feel like? very, it's- very good. Yeah. Okay. There are millions okay. because okay. it's swarming fish and you can only collect it during the dry season. So that's only three, four months out of the year. So the rest of the year, no one can collect them. It's the same right. as with, with Altum angels or other fishes. Sure. Many are we don't have fishes. a big, there's not a, a significant population threat at this point on something like, like, like Rumino's Tetra still. You have to, still you in good shape it. from your experience. Yes, yes, they're definitely good shape. No, no. Question. That's good. That's yeah, good. Yeah. So, the other species that uh, everybody knows <laughs> is the what we call Amazon sword, Echinoderus blairi. Blairi, yeah. Blairi. It's, so is you this? You have to. Uh, the, I believe the story goes. Your now, your mother is responsible for this one. No. Well, in my new book, the biotopes, Blair's biotopes. I have actually photos of it. I discovered it in 1962, before I came to America. And uh, I brought it to my mother. She had a cultivation already uh, since 59, outside of Rio Janeiro, cultivation of aquarium plants, big one, which I helped to build. And uh, she actually cultivated and she started to export it. She exported it. I mean, I was just recently in Australia, and my dearest friend there, he just turned 86. He he said, you know, I got the first ones of those plants for my mother, and we are breeding it here. But today this plant is, to my knowledge, the most sold aquarium plant on the planet, and Easily. it's cultivated all over the planet, all over. Yeah. They, yeah. they cultivated by the millions in Malaysia, uh, in Indonesia, in uh, many parts of Asia today, and uh, not anymore in Europe, almost no one, because the heating cost and so on is not being cultivated in Europe, but it's been in all of Asia cultivated yes. very much. It's, it's one I find even people, this is the first aquarium plant. This is their point of entry into having yeah. yes. live plants in the aquarium system. It's just it's, a very important piece of history to me. And it's easy to grow. Yes, it's 1986. It was described after my mother because 
it was in the 19... Uh, I have to look it up, but I think it was uh, 1970, 72, 73, that uh, uh, scientists from the Czech Republic, Ratai, he was the most knowledgeable person at that time about the family Alismataceae, which it belongs to. And he revised the genus Echinodorus, because the genus is Echinodorus, Echinodorus pleuri. And he revised the genus. I actually published it in my magazine um, in the 1990s. It's a very nice book because he was the only one who cultivated all at that time known 62 different species of Echinodorus. So he and this publication also described several, maybe you have heard of Echinodorus Osiris, maybe you have heard of Echinodorus Porta Alegrensis, maybe you have heard of Echinodorus Opacus, um, and also Pleiari. He described all of these species which we found. Wow. And Pleiari was the one I found. I remember the place I went back, but today, at the same place where I found it are only high-rises. The whole oh, biotope. Wow. Everything is destroyed. Really? Oh. really? The, the, the habitat doesn't exist anymore. No fish, no plant, no nothing. Just buildings and buildings and buildings. Aye. But this is all, so over the, the, all, all, over, all over the world. It's true. It's true. So that, that plant, are you saying it's not... It, it couldn't be found in the wild no, anymore? I did not find it anymore. I did not find wow. it anymore. Definitely not. Wow. And I went back a few times. No, I did not find it. I found another That's... new Echinodorus, which uh, Ratai then still named, uh, but he named it Hycoblary. So he, he, he gave it a double species name. Okay. The, the disadvantage is that I brought this back to companies like Aquaflora and Anubias in Europe, but it disappeared. I don't see it anymore. And this is, uh, is the second uh, Echinodorus I found, which only lives submerged, only underwater. When it goes oh. very, very low, very low, the water level in nature, it does not grow out. Maybe that's... that. Could speak to why a nursery may may yeah, struggle may with it. Yes, they, 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 they tend to cultivate they tend to struggle with the above yeah. water. Yes, sure. The, the pure yeah. submerged yeah. species are are, yes, are tricky, yes, but yes, um, yes, yeah. I, I'm trying to understand or just have the sensation a little bit. Uh, Tell me of like coming upon something like that or or a, a, that discovery of a new species or is this just a what what is that like for how does that feel what is the what's in your mind or your body when you find it, it, you it, know, something new like that i have uh, many people do not believe this but uh, having studied studied fishes all my life and freshwater naturally I, very little practice some practice but almost zero marine I have uh, dedicated myself to this because my mother did it, my grandfather did it also. And uh, I actually, uh, 
You can ask me for about 15,000 freshwater fish names, I can tell you. But you ask me about 10 names of friends and I cannot remember. <laughs> I will always remember you and Mike, there's no problem. But anyhow, sure. um, because of this knowledge, and I don't know how many millions of copies I did before the internet started of all publications of every single freshwater fish. I have files and files and files and files of uh, all freshwater fishes, whatever had been published before internet started, I have. So that gave me naturally a lot of knowledge and I have had the experience uh, throughout the 30 years I worked with what I consider was one of the best known scientists in the world, ichthyologist Jacques Ferry, the Frenchman, he spoke perfect German and, and uh, English also. And he always had problems with Weizmann in Washington DC at the Smithsonian, which was your most famous American um, specialist on tetras, caracoids. No? And Jacques Jerry was the only one in the world who ever wrote a book about the caracoids of the world, because they only live in Central, South and Africa, uh, Central America and South America and in Africa, no, no other place. And with him, I learned during 30 years, we lived very close, uh, I learned during 30 years how to identify new species in nature. And since then, I mean, this goes back to the late 60s, early 70s, I never missed. I never missed. You know, when I, when I have found the uh, now Peridella, Blairi, um, Jacques said, I cannot describe it. I need other materials. So I went to collect, but I said, it's a new species. And it took him 17 years to describe it. This is often how long it takes. Uh, a good scientist will take a long time to really verify with all other existing um, species in that family or in the genus to make it a new species. That's what should be done always. I'm doing a scientific journal uh, for 28 years now. I just had to stop the publication because it became too expensive. So we have it only online now since last year. And... Uh, with this, naturally, I also learned so much in addition to my knowledge. But if I'm in nature, I just came back from uh, three expeditions last month in Colombia. I was in the Valpes River in an area where no one has ever gone before, looking for fish or for plant, no one. And I found 150 different freshwater fish species, and I found at least of these 25 are new, completely new, unknown, never seen before, including one which is the maximum size nine millimeters. So that's mm. what, a quarter of an inch? Adult. Yeah. And I have excellent photos of it. And it's hard to believe that such small fish exist, such small vertebrates. But I already am looking for the smallest fishes for many, many years now. You know, in my book about the Indian ornamental fishes, 
I showed one species I found in India, border with Bhutan. I actually was in Bhutan, which was on the tip of my finger, covered only half of it. And then I measured it and it was 6.9 millimeter adult. And it doesn't, doesn't grow any bigger. I verified it a long time, but this it's still not described. This is a true nano fish. Yes. <laughs> this is real nano. I mean, they always say uh, in the internet, which are the smallest uh, vertebrates on the planet, I think I already found them. These are the smallest vertebrates. There's nothing smaller than this. And then if you so go back to the original fishes, you know, I give so many lectures and seminars around the world. Uh, not during the pandemic time. They canceled 30, 39 of mine. They but it started, it started this year again. And I have several coming up for next year. And uh, yeah. I show the people this. And uh, I think it's so important so, that people learn more about freshwater species because they are the sure. oldest, oldest creatures on this planet. I was just what, in February. There, uh, yes. What did you want to I say? Guess when you arrive on a, you're, you're going to a new area, you, you know good and well, anyone who's been there, they, they certainly weren't there looking for new species or any such thing. There probably was no one there at all anyway. And so you're arriving in this place. You just, do you just have a sort of a feeling about let's stop here? Yes. And, yes. Yes. And then we just, we just, this is it. Something just comes a feeling in the body. Something yes, just says, yes, this is the spot. Yes. Yes. We yes. get out of the boat. Definitely. We do, do, are, do we, you just, are you getting in the water? Is there a net comes out or what? what walk us through that, that, sequ that just, sequence. What this? Yeah. I just tell you about the last month, uh, November. I had uh, a very, very nice, very young, 21-year-old uh, boy from Chile. He's an amazing guy. He called me up just about eight days before I was leaving Italy, and he was in Padova, Padova, Italy. And maybe you don't know, but Padova has the oldest university on the planet. It exists almost a thousand years. And he studied, he came from Chile to study in this university in Italy, biology. He studies biology. And he said, Mr. Blair, you know, I know you since my 11th year and always been reading and hearing about you. I want to come on your next expedition. I said, it's in one week. <laughs> uh, this was end of uh, October. And he said, and I said, how, how can you make this? You are from Chile, you're studying. Yeah, but my semester here at the university have finished, only starting again in January or February, I don't know. And uh, I don't care what, I want to come with you. So he flew from Milan to Santiago de Chile. And from Santiago de Chile, he flew to Bogota to meet me because I said, you have to meet me on this and this day there. Then you can come with me. So anyhow, uh, this boy went to me in every creek. We chartered a plane to go to Mitu. And from Mitu, we went up the river into all the side rivers where I had known that no one went before. 
And uh, exactly as you asked just a few minutes ago, every time the boat came by one place, I said, stop here. And we walked into this side creek. Some of them almost impossible to get through because they're all fallen trees. No? All the jungle untouched. The trees eventually fall into the water, into the river. And uh, you had to have to climb over all the trees in order to get into the biotope. And this, bio, this boy followed me everywhere, barefoot. He followed me barefoot, going over, over the woods and trees. And uh, he actually, because I made him aware how to find some new fish, I said, go there and you will find a new killifish, because no one was here. And he found two new killifishes. Wow. I found only one killifish new, right. but I found 25 other species. But he's, a, he's very smart and very humble mm. and very good. But this was just to explain to you how I work. Yeah, you just kind of know. And then is there, a, after all these years, there's still, I'm, I presume, some delight or some sort of excitement or uh, oh, yes. uh, that, that is, is a new... And you do you you know it when you see it, I suppose. The, so the exactly. fish comes up, and and you're going, wow, this, here's something new. Ninety nine yeah. out of hundred percent, I knew this is a new species. Yeah. And he learned it from me. He saw it. He said, "This is unknown. This is un not known." Or sometimes, naturally, this is a known species, but it has never been record recorded from here. You know. It sounds like there could even be a almost endless i mean could a humans well, even ever find all the species in the depths and the uh areas unexplored the uh, it problem, seems like it just could go on and on and on yes and you know what uh, the worst problem is and this is what i fear that all of these places where these species live they will not be there for future generations everything right, is right Everything is disappearing at a speed you cannot believe, you know. I was seven, eight years ago. My mother took me in the Amazon. It was only forest, only forest. Animals everywhere, everywhere. I, I saw thousands and thousands of macaws flying every morning over my head because they fly towards the sunrise, the same in the evening. Uh, I went with these guys now to areas uh, where no one has been, only Indian tribes live. And we saw in eight days two macaws. This is, wow. and no other animal. There's no animal in places where no one lives. And then I go to the Indian chief and I say, tell me, when I was young, I came here all the time and I saw animals like you see it in the movies, like you see it in the zoo. And I don't see animals anymore. I, I don't see hunter, tapir. I don't see jaguars. I don't see monkeys. I don't see parrots. I don't see birds. <laughs> this old Indian chief is almost my age. He said, you know, when I came with my grandfather, uh, he came from Brazil crossing, walking into this area uh, of the Amazon, which now belongs to Colombia. He said, I saw, like you, in your childhood, I saw hundreds and hundreds and thousands of animals. 
But in the meanwhile, like where we live here now, this community is only about 250 Indians. But in the area live 27 Indian tribes, and they're all the same size. And they have no, no, no other protein. Some of the rivers have very few fishes because this is black water. And with black water, you don't find many species because the fishes don't have enough food. So Blackwater rivers are actually, besides, because they are very, very acid and very low conductivity, the fishes cannot live. They cannot find mosquito lava. They cannot find mm. lava, nothing. So when I was young, uh, coming back to this old man, he said, like, what do you tell me? But now they have, they come here and they eat all. Every Indian tribes even kills every snake and eats it, every monkey, every macaw, every bird, every anter, every jaguar, everything has been eaten. And I find this globally, I found I was, uh, I was in July, one month in the Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo. I've also found several new species because they gave me a permit to go to some parks. But wherever I went, when I saw a monkey, they just killed it and were frying it. Every animal they eat. The natives now, the population has naturally grown tremendously, also under Indian tribes or natives in Africa or whatever, and they have no other income of protein, maybe not enough fish. So they eat every animal, right. every single animal. And so this is, this is the danger. And I, I, this really is non-stoppable. There's no WWF. There's no any organization who is doing anything against it. They protect okay. it so under CITES. They protect right. it under CITES. They protect it in all kinds of papers, but not in the nature. No, right. no one protects anything in the nature. Where they come from? So there's actually a there's actually a a problem of the Big native problem. tribes over consuming yes. the animals. Wow! Before I, you it know, I have never heard that. I've never no, heard it. I because mean, because no obviously one, I'm just getting the the media propaganda is telling me no whatever one tells stories. You, you yeah. know, I yes, I watched now television because I wanted to see the game Argentina right. versus. <laughs> versus France. France was yeah. four years ago the world champion. But yep. Argentina deserved it. But anyhow, I wanted to see. But normally I never, ever touch television. You know, even in all the hotels I'm invited, I turn it immediately off. I don't believe in it. Uh, I don't care what channel it is or they talk about animals or nature. It is all fake. It is all not true. Yeah. The people who do this, they have no idea about nature. They have really no... They go, you know, like they go once in their lifetime in the Amazon and they write about the Amazon. I finally right. wrote about the Amazon when I did 330 expeditions into almost every angle of the Amazon. Now I have done over 550. But I mean, I got knowledge about it because I saw it. And yes. I only believe what I see. Right. And this is the same in television. I don't believe in television because I cannot verify if this is true or if it's manipulated. 
as they do with almost enough. everything. Yes. And, and that contradicts your own experience exactly. from and, and I have spending an enormous of, amount of time. Exactly. Yes, I hundreds mean, and hundreds very, of proofs. Yeah. This is not the, uh, oh, that time 10 years ago, I did an expedition down there. You yeah. Know? yeah exactly. even, even the great, yeah. you know, and he's a man who was a, a major, you know, influence on, on, my, on my career and somebody that influenced me a great deal in my work with aquariums, but uh, Takashi Amano, uh, even... You know, he he made some trips, uh, but this was not uh, an ongoing thing. <laughs> you know, the, he, these you know, these one him. expedition to each region was really touted. He, he's promoting this for years and years. Uh, he was a very close was, friend of mine. You know, we gave a lot of conference together. Right. And, and uh, I think almost every single expedition he made because he followed me. He wanted to yeah. know from me information and so on. Unfortunately, a very nice person and passed away much too early. That's but his true. daughter That's is very true. nice, and she, Saori, is a very kind person. And you know, yeah, actually, done a fantastic job with yeah. the brand in his in his yeah. uh, absence. But yes. um, there's a famous photo, yeah. uh, and I'll, I want to edit it into the into the video part of this interview as well. Of um, it's you and Amano. This is you guys are. I don't know the year here. Everybody looks quite young in it. I think this was, was before it? Mr. Mono was all that famous. And then there's another gentleman with you. Maybe is it Fossa or who? who's with you in this photo? The three of you are standing outside of maybe like a, uh, and there's like a Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone. This was uh, 2004, I think. Yes, uh, it was the owner of Eheim. The Eheim, Reinhard Eheim, okay. Takashi, and myself, and they wanted to take this photo about. Uh, I had just because you're looking them, like icons, you know, yeah, like, a, like a legends there, Bruce like a Marvel Willis, comics yeah. characters of, of aquariums. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually in his book. This photo in his last book, right? Which is far yeah. in the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you see the. Um, I, I know you've been out, outspoken over the years on the the aquascaping movement and oh, this, this I, aquarium I, style, which has obviously become so so very popular and features many fish. You're seeing because the kinds of fishes most popular in the aquascape, I would bet that you probably discovered the overwhelming majority of them that are commonly used. Um, and yet I've I have seen that you've been outspoken on the topic just in terms of what exactly we're doing with this sort of thing and i know you were uh close with mr amano who really brought the entire concept to the world but uh, with, a, with but, a very good intention but I, right. I want to interrupt here because yeah the people who so-called aquascaping or aquascapers they misunderstood takashi completely because he Takashi Amano never ever used the word aquascape. For him, it was always nature aquarium. This is a great point, Heiko. This is a big deal this, what you're saying. This is you. really something which came up, someone invented. You go to the British English dictionary, you will not find the word aquascape. It doesn't exist. Someone invented this, and it was after Takashi. Takashi never did say this. And the opposite, 
when we were together, he said, you know, Heiko, I do nature aquariums and you do more biotopes. This is okay. Uh, it is both okay. And I said, yes, naturally it's okay. I have nothing against it. The problem for me, and this is why some of those so-called aquascapers have something against me, is when I see them doing it in exhibitions, if this is in Jakarta, if it's in, uh, in China, uh, in Shanghai, Guangzhou, or if it's in, in Colombia, anywhere, they only do one and the same thing. 99 out of 100 aquascaped aquariums, which are made for one or two days, because then they are disassembled, no? They look very similar. They have, one is copying another. And, and the, the biggest problem I see, I just had this discussion with a number one Italian girl. She's very good, uh, um, Gloria. And uh, I told her, why do all of the scapers always have in the middle of their scape a river? You watch out for this. It's all of oh, them. I've commented on it. Yeah. Left and right, and the river in the middle. Yeah. And you know immediately one is copying another. Why you don't invent something new? Change it. Don't the winding, copy. This winding sand, sand path going. Yes, the middle, yes. Right? I, yeah. I just cannot look at it anymore. You know, I, I think it's, right. it's without any idea, without any really thinking. You know, I do biotope aquariums and they invite me all over the world. No? I have done so many in China. I have done them throughout Europe. I actually, uh, did I have done any in America, USA? I don't know. I have done in Central America, in Nicaragua, Guatemala, in Colombia, naturally, Ecuador. But uh, when I do them, first of all, I think about the fish. Do I have the fish for the biotope? So when I have the fish, I know that they live together in nature in a biotope. Then I do the biotope and I add the fishes. And then I can for sure say this is a biotope very near to nature, almost authentic to where they live. And you will see how they move. If you do this with many fishes, discus or whatever, you get a complete different perspective of fishes in an aquarium. People don't realize this, that fishes communicate. I cannot put a fish from Nigeria together with one from the Rio Negro River, with one from Australia in one aquarium. They never communicate. Fishes talk. Right. People do not understand that fishes talk. I have shown it. I've actually lectures done specifically about this proving and showing to fish, to people that fishes talk they communicate they communicate with colors they communicate with signs they communicate sometimes only at nighttime with their eyes and so on there's a lot of ways fishes communicate but they don't communicate with the fish from another continent it never worked i see it hundreds of I, times it doesn't work yeah and, and it I'm doesn't, not, uh, and, and important is to know that it's in the gene of the fish. If it's not a hybrid, 
if it's a natural fish and that has been bred for many years or decades, he still communicates the same way as his wild brother. The communication There's remains. The, I'm not. A, I'm not always a purist in the sense of uh, as a matter of sort of philosophy or even really principle. But I, I've noted. I've noticed that over the years that you know putting a southeast asian fish with a south american fish for example or mixing with west african etc something just doesn't feel quite right with it and every once in a while i'll still do it and i always end up going ah, i kind of regret that you know i did it i did it admittedly for a look you know or kind of the design of it they seem to go with the scape somehow this now we're back at this aquascape problem but um <laughs> Uh, and I do it and I, ha I always end up going, I really, why did I do that? You know, I always have a sort of a feeling that just something's not quite right. Now I do, I, I did notice that, you know, Mr. Amano would do that. Sometimes he would have a barb and a tetra together, uh, in a layout and it, you know, it worked in a, in a photograph. Um, it did always kind of puzzle me a little bit and it sort of validated it for me in some kind of way. Um, but yeah, there is definitely something not quite connecting, even just visually, even the visual of it doesn't quite work in a way I can't really put into words. How do you feel that works though with say hybridizer domesticated discus, all these uh, countless variations of discus that we have now and they're kept in different kinds of, I mean, they're, they're raised now so many generations in a bare tank with a sponge filter bubbling uh, you know, and this seems to be this I, I've said, is it not unlike a purebred dog? You have a chihuahua is not a wolf anymore. Exactly. Um, and so far removed and the chihuahua is happy to just, uh, sit on your lap and eat, eat the food and never leave the house. And, uh, it seems perfectly content. Is there, is that line, is that line blurrier or different with, with fish that have now become profoundly domesticated? In terms of the environment we keep them in, in the aquarium, is it, uh, what, what's your, what's your thoughts on that in terms of the appropriateness of their. I center? have, I have had naturally many problems with discus breeders about this because sure. I show them an aquarium and you can see it. I think the most published photo of mine of discus in an aquarium is in the internet. I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of copies they're made. Because discus is a group fish. Discus lives in groups. But like Hemigramus blairi or like uh, Hifasobricon amandae, the fish named after uh, my mother, uh, which I found a beautiful, small, you call it fire tetra, I think. It's a beautiful Ember fish. Tetra. Ember tetra. Sometimes, yeah. Uh, it's wildly a, popular in, 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 in yeah. planted aquariums. Worldwide. Wildly popular. Worldwide. Yes. And uh, it's a nice group fish. And uh, these fishes, if you put them in group, they really make your aquarium beautiful. And this is the very same with discus. So I put up an aquarium with 60 adults discus. F1, first breeding of one breed. And they swim left and right. They go like you cannot stop watching. I had once an exhibit in Hasselt, Belgium, and I made a 4,000 liter aquarium. And uh, it had, I put in 80 discus, adults. 
And I had lines of 25,000 people coming to my aquarium for two days looking at it because the discos were going, what? What? Like they do in nature, what? They protect themselves, this swimming group. And all these fancy hybrids and colored discos today, they form no group. There's a red, a blue, a green, a yellow discus in aquarium. There's no communication. They don't swim normal. And in many cases, they go very skinny because they have to be fed very well. I mean, I really must tell you, I hate them. I hate people doing this. And I'm very fortunate I see in Italy, in Germany, in some parts of France now, more and more, not so much in England, people want to have wild discus because they have yeah. seen how the big difference. Or they want to have, like my best friend in Italy, he breeds F1, F2, F3 of wild ones. And the place I'm here right now, it's in Austria, called Svetl. The man has, he's a very dear friend of mine, he always invites me because he has discus, only wild and only F1, F2. I just published a few of the photos uh, today on my Facebook site. I don't know if you go to my Facebook site. There's photos of his tanks. And he loves this. He just came back from Manaus to collect, to get uh, from collectors some very, very beautiful specimens. And he's building about... Uh, 25 miles from here, a new installation, because here in his house, the place is too small. He has large aquariums, but he wants to have a new big place. And yeah. he just gets 380 wild adult discus next week. And I'm here also because I want to photograph this and document it. He knows the it's behavior, you, you look in his aquariums down there, and the F1, uh, these swimming groups together with the parents, uh, it's, a, it's a harmony, it's a communication, it's, a, it's just beautiful. It's just simply it's beautiful. Glorious. Yeah. And the people don't see too much. I know I say that with, this. you know, just, just behind me, I've got this uh, hybrid fish, but the story here, actually, yeah. this, this aquarium is not even 24 hours old. I just put it up last night. <laughs> And uh, I, I obviously I have wood, a way. But I, I can't see the fish. What fish you have there? Yeah, it's it's a uh, there's a there's the usual uh, there's a turquoise, yeah, yeah, red turquoise. I, I think there's one. Uh, you know, they are calling it blue cobalt or whatever these old strains are. And these fish were I wanted to do uh, wild fish. These were kind of a rescue uh, because they we had them at the shop. Uh, we got sent a double order. We placed an order, and then someone else on staff ordered the same fish again, and they came together. We had too many. Now, I don't. we don't really keep these in my store uh, because well, I say if you're wanting a disc, I, don't want, I almost don't want someone to be able to walk in and too easily just buy discus. You know, I, it's a fish that I feel like some, you need some orientation. You, you need to know. Uh, a, something a little deeper about this fish in particular. Should read uh, about it because they were there. Right, they were. They, you need to. You need to read Blair's discus 
Players buy a dope, so you need to know these things. You can learn so, more than what discus costs, and you save money. Because my right, books are not so right. expensive. But let me tell but you I, something. I knew that the, the, the fate was not going to be good for these fish. They're just in the regular holding system. And the, and the, the way we keep most of the fish in the systems there, It's I just said, okay, I'm going to let me at least home them temporarily in my own aquarium at home. Uh, you know, and they're doing well. This is all not even 24 hours. They're, they're already eating and, you know, this sort of thing. But I agree with you that um, the wild fish have a, a character and a depth that is not emulated well by the, by the domestic fish. And, uh, but they're just, they're just everywhere now. And yes. uh, the uh, wild fish are still, you know, many people, they struggle with the particular... Well, the internal parasites and these other kinds of illness problems, et cetera, uh, are often, whereas I think people feel like the domestic fish have come from a situation where they've only known life in an aquarium exactly. and they're therefore going to be easier to keep. Yeah, I'm a, I don't mind the ones that haven't strayed so far from the wild strains. But some of these obvious, I needn't tell you, have become almost garish and you know, the crazy breeding, but you know, it's not, you know, I still see a little dog, a little, a poodle, a little toy poodle. And I, you know, I still have an affection for this animal, even though it's, it's far removed from a wolf. Um, and I know dogs and fish, it's a different animal, but, uh, I'm always just fascinated at the different opinions about what we've done with them from the breeding and the making it into an ornamental aquarium fish as opposed to the wild animal. But now, like you say, the successful breeding of the wild strains of discus uh, should presumably make that more accessible to more people. And I assume they come without some of the problems of the wild collected varieties, just in terms of their immunity and these kinds of things. Um, but yeah, I can tell it's a subject that is, no, no, I want to mention, <laughs> I want, I want to mention something because, you know, I give so many conferences and many of them also only about discus and I have shown at least a hundred times already your aquarium Heiko's lesson 2004. You remember? You remember I that? Do, of course. Yes. Yeah. It's a, a big moment this, in my, my career. You have in there, and actually I had suggested it, a group of hybrids, but only one line. This was the right. original line of Schmidt Focke of 1970s. And he named it the Solid Blue. And from this line, which was actually from Wild Fish, which I collected in a Rio Tefe. And he reproduced those fishes. If you only keep these fishes, this is one line. That's a line existing for now uh, over 40 years. If anyone continues with this line, just one, and not, do not mix it with red discus, with other blue discus, with they call diamonds and call you know, what else, you have seen on your on the photo which is published everywhere on the internet that they formed a group. They swim in one group. 
because right. they are from one origin. It's like every other fish or animal. If they are from one and the same origin, you never have a problem and you will always have a beautiful aquarium. So I'm not totally against tank breed discus, but only if there's in a line, in an existing line. I mean, Schmidt Fokker developed seven different lines and some of them still exist today. If you keep just one of these lines, red turquoise, uh, brilliant, uh, solid, uh, green, if you keep one of these lines, only these together in one aquarium, you will always like it, you will always have fun, you will always have a beautiful aquarium. But not what unfortunately almost all the shops I see it worldwide. Do the customer comes in? Ah, I like this red one. I like this green one. I like this blue one. Give me one of each. Instead of these, inform the people who have no knowledge about discus that they shouldn't do this because it never if, looks right either. It just doesn't look right. right. No, yeah. it looks yeah. not only for me. It doesn't look right. It doesn't look. It looks awful. It looks really yeah. terrible. Especially in a planted tank. You have, the, you have yes. the green, this consistent green, and then against it you've got a yellow and a red, and it's all over the place. And that's never, that's never worked for me either. And they do uh, not these... want to understand that a discus should not have CO2. He doesn't have it in nature. He doesn't have it in the breeding establishment wherever they come from. So you shouldn't have it in a quorum. It's a shock for the fish. I told this to they, they Takashi also. Yeah, they don't respond well to it. No, yeah, no, I, no, I agree. I I, no. I finally learned my lesson about that. It's yes, really, yeah. uh, the, the behavior, the it's, way, yes, the, the, everything. The, 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 something is off when you have the CO2. Definitely, um, definitely. Uh, I recently tried it here earlier in the year, and I, it, it was because I hadn't done it in a long time, and I, you know, I regretted it and uh, ended up just taking the aquarium down and just regrouping. Uh, but I, I definitely agree, and that's a point I'm moving forward when I intend Very to good. emphasize Very in good. terms of the Do this, yeah. this aquarium, this, aquarium yeah. planted aquarium discus, yeah. Uh, yeah. sort of this yeah. holy grail style. But you also mentioned the name of Schmidt. Fish. Yeah, Schmidtfocke. Yeah. Schmidtfocke, right. And that that just reminds me of, you know, again, my, my when I was much much younger in my childhood, even like hearing those names, names like uh, uh, Burned Dagen. Was another surely you knew this, Mister Dagan? Um, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. well, I didn't know him, so I did. I'm not aware of it, any history there. Say anything? Okay, because these are books I'm seeing when I'm, you know, just a, a young man anyway. Um, and this is a lot of it, that was sort of my gateway to even learning that such a fish existed uh, back then, but. Um, what, what, and so another fish and another story that I think is important for people, people to know that I don't want to forget. Uh, and this could sometimes I go, you know, I think there's a herb, there's like a urban legends of aquarium history that go on here sometimes that you're, you're almost always a part of. So isn't there some controversy about who actually discovered what we call Cardinal Tetra? Yes, it's, I, I have written actually in my, in my, uh, volume one of Blair's Discus, the whole story is in there. It was sure. found by a German professor 
His name was Sioli. And Sioli made trips to the upper Rio Negro in the early 1950s, actually 1952 to be exactly. And he found it and with Indian tribes. And the next thing was that uh, he was flown to Manaus by um, pilot of the company that existed at that time, Cruzeiro do Sul, who was a fish lover. And he, uh, they had a conversation in Manaus, and this fish lover pilot, uh, the, the, the commander pilot of this uh, company, he was able to get some. Uh, the Indian tribes brought it down to Manaus, and at that time, Willy Schwartz did not exist, and Aquarium Rio Negro didn't exist. And he brought the fish back to Sao Paulo, where his home was. And uh, the next thing was that, uh, I'm sure you remember a name, Fred Koshu. Fred Koshu, Paramount sounds, Aquarium. Sounds familiar. He was one of the first in the United States to bring in fishes from South America before World War II and after World War mm. II. He was the first one to bring in Inesi, the Neon Tetra. And Fred, I have actually the tape, recorded tape of it. And Fred was the first one in the United States to get the Cardinal Tetra. This was end of 54 and, and beginning of 55, January or February. I have it all on, on, on tape. And Fred was a very dear friend. He actually came to my last party in Germany to my 25th anniversary for Aquarium Rio, he came to my uh, installation in, in, in Frankfurt and he came to my party and uh, very nice gen gentleman. He was German too, as you may have known. So Fred has brought this fish to a shop in New Jersey. I, I'm not, I have to listen to the, to the tape again. I don't know if the shop was his or the shop was the shop where Evelyn Axelrod later worked because she worked at an aquarium shop. That's how he got to know her, which later then they married. And he brought, and he had this shop and Herbert walked in and saw this fish. In the meanwhile, um, the fish had already been described as Hifesopricon cardinalis. This is why it's still in Brazil, in, in, in the Amazon, all the areas where it's collected, is still today called Cardinal Tetra. Uh, it, it, the paper exists. I have seen the paper because it was Stan Weizmann at the, at, uh, the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., who had described it. Hifesopricon cardinalis. This is published. And then Smart Herbert was so intelligent, he found this in the shop. And then he went to the man who I already, at that time, uh, no, the man whose name was Harald Schulz. And Harald Schulz later was uh, also 
the man who described for him the discus after his name. In the meanwhile, the discus is synonymized because it was a false name also. And it was actually, I wasn't present, but I know that he paid him a very high amount of money. And I said, you describe this fish as Axelrodi. And when Schultz said, but there is a publication going on. I can, we are too late. And this I know precisely. And, and he insisted and gave him some money. You can falsify the dates. You can predate the paper of your publication of uh, Chirodon Axerodi. Today it's in Parashirodon, but at that time it was Chirodon. Chirodon Axerodi, and he predated it. They had a big fight, and they went actually into court in New Jersey. But I think the same as with me, uh, he bribed the judge, and the judge gave the sentence to the paper published by Schulz as Axelrodi. And so Axelrod had only stumbled upon the fish in the shop. In the shop. <laughs> you never... He, you know, it was, it was never out in the. No, the, he was never in, with out the, with the with the, no, with the speedo no, no, in the water. With the, the whole world in all his magazines is all lies. It's all lies except for my articles because wow. I never lied. Um, right. He was he was actually in Manaus for the first time in 1959. So four or five years after description, no? because he had... After it was already found. Yeah, yeah. He, he was there because uh, he visited uh, Harold Schulz and he visited uh, Willy Schwartz. Very and then he was another three or four times uh, in the Amazon. That's it. That's all. But he I wonder if there it. could ever be a movement in the, in the hobby to pay a tribute to the to the real founder and return to calling the fish you know cardinalis i think you said was the original name you know yeah, just well, out of a sort of a you know there's no I there's think, no point uh, to it other than just to pay an homage to the you know knowing this story to be more factually based than the the other the other story which is just <laughs> what is the other story there's a history of this fish already in progress in terms of the paper and everything else you know so it's uh it's an interesting one because this is a fish everybody knows sure. though people still call it neon tetra if they don't know anything about no, fish. Neon tetra <laughs> is, is, is it's a completely fish. different fish of course but right what is there is there a, any particular backstory to the neon tetra in terms of its yes, discovery it's, it's all in my book uh it's in my book you have to read it it's a it's a it's a frenchman his name was Rabau, a very interesting man, because uh, he uh, there's actually a small booklet. His, not his uh, wife, the daughter of his wife, she wrote me many years ago and thanked me for publishing the true story about it, uh, because Rabau, he was actually a friend of Jacques Ferry, because Rabau was also a Frenchman. And Rabau went to several times to the Amazon in the late 
1920s, in the early 1930s. And he actually found the Neon Tetra 1934. 1934. And uh, he stumbled over it because he... <laughs> it is an amazing story. You should read this. He was after... Uh, the liver of crocodiles, of caimans. Because the liver of the caimans were used at that time in France for some, some chemical or some perfume or whatever. I, I don't recall it. But this is what he was. He was a hunter. He was actually an animal hunter. And he was living from hunting animals. But he stumbled over it when he was trying to collect caimans because one Indian woman uh, had just collected these brilliant small fishes because they live in small, very small creeks and rivers or flooded areas, not in the main Amazon River, but in the area of Peru. Uh, the distribution is exactly in my book all written. But he got the fish back to France this is the story is so fascinating. It's also in my book of autobiography. <laughs> Just to make a long story short, he brought the fish to a friend of Jacques Jerry in Paris, and he then uh, gave the fish to at that time the biggest wholesaler of ornamental fish in Europe was in Hamburg, Hamburg, Germany. In Hamburg, Germany, it was called Aquarium Hamburg. When he brought in these neon tetras to Hamburg, at the same day there was Fred Koshu from Paramount Aquarium. Paramount Aquarium was uh, established, I think, in 1928. It's one of the first imminent exporters of ornamental fish in the United States, Fred Koshu, Paramount Aquarium. And Fred was there at this very moment. And he said, I want some of these fish. And I want to bring it back to have it described. And uh, he gave him, I think, seven, if I'm right. But as I said again, you have to read my book if you want to know about the Amazon. And uh, it flew back in the first Zeppelin. Zeppelin, you know what Zeppelin is? These Zeppelin uh, no. were these gigantic airplanes they had before airplanes in Europe. Uh, is that, the name is Zeppelin. You, you find it, you go to the internet, look for Zeppelin. They were monsters. They were 50 or 100 meters long and 5 or 10 oh, meters Zeppelin. high. Yeah, Zeppelin. Zeppelin. Yeah. Zeppelin. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, yes. You a blimp. Know. We call yeah. it a blimp. And he shipped this with a Hindenburg. This was one of the last flights. Here we go. Yes. I, yes. I think it was 34. And, right. the, and, and the Hindenburg crashed in New Jersey. So famously, right. Almost all passengers died. Yeah. Out of the seven Neos, one survived. Only one. One neon. So they in, called the him. First, so the first so neon first tetra is coming. Tetra. Right? It's in yes. the Hindenburg. Yes. Yes. Wow. And, <laughs> and not only this, they called it from this moment on 
Lucky Lindy. The one surviving neon tetra. Yeah, because it was the first crossing the ocean. And yeah. Lindbergh was the first man who crossed the ocean on a flight. Right. You remember? Wow. I'm wondering if somebody, uh, who, who found this one <laughs> Lucky Lindy? And, <laughs> wow. Yeah, I don't know exactly. I think it was uh, uh, the friend or, or Fred Koshel himself. I don't remember. But Rabau, after that, they discovered that it's a new fish. He went back and he collected. He sold them all to... He sold him 4,000 neon tetras in 19, end of 1934 or 35. Fred Kosher was waiting for him at the port of New York. Was this in the Hudson River or whatever? And with him was the man named Innes. Innes was the famous American who had written several books much better than Axelrod ever did, and true books. Right. And uh, Rabau said, I, I sell you, I have 4,000 fish, but I want $4,000 for it. I mean, imagine how much was $4,000 in right. 1934. Yeah. I figured it was more than $100,000 today. Probably close to that. It was a sizable amount of money. Fred told me, I need one week because I need the, I have to get the bank to get the money for you. And he got the money. He paid Rabau the 4000 And then the neons were sold at $10 each. Wow. I, I don't know if he sold all 10000 or 4000 But anyhow, wow. it's, it's an amazing story behind this. Who? who and then how, in... How, 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 Yes. Well, I was going to ask, I was going to, didn't want to interrupt, but I was going to ask how, how then a fish like that goes on to be uh, spawned in captivity. Uh, is that, is that something like you, do you know who said, okay, I'm going to breed this now and make it one of the most commonly known tropical fish on the planet? You know, the, the neon tetra comes from a water which pH is around six while the cardinal tetra comes from a water, the pH is out four. So it took the people extreme long time to breed cardinals. But it was much easier to breed right. the neon tetra because it comes from less acid water. So I think they started to breed them in the in, after World War II. The first breeders of neon tetras were in East Germany. I know this because my mother went all the time there in 1948, 1949, 50. She even got imprisoned by the Russians because they thought she was smuggling fishes. It's not allowed and so on. She was getting the neons and was the only one to distribute them in, throughout Europe in the very late 40s in, until about 1952. She was the only one selling them and I traveled with her to many places so I know very well and I never forget she brought them at that time no plastic bag existed no there were fish cans no canisters and then they yeah. had to be isolated because it's very cold no? it's, it's cold here now <laughs> right it, 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 it's uh, 
sometimes in those canisters, no oxygen, nothing did exist. I remember one time she brought them to Paris uh, to a very uh, nice wholesaler uh, there, Sidoli, and there were several fish dead. And uh, he said to her, Mrs. Amanda, don't worry. I pay you more for the dead fish and for the live ones. And she said, why? Because we put them under a grill and the people use them for uh, putting weight on the papers on the desk. On the... Interesting. <laughs> it's amazing. Interesting. Okay. It There's is. a lot. I, I could so... tell you now for a few weeks, I'm writing all of these things in my autobiography, but I hope to finish it someday. I have it in my computer. I have already about six or 700 pages. That'd be, yeah, pri that'd be a priceless piece of aquarium history. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> on fish like me, um, in terms of the acidity of the water, you point to the difference between, say, a cardinal and a neon. So when we get to something that is proven challenging to breed in captivity, uh, like, you know, we're using this word ultim angel, though I know now there's even a lot of discussion about which which one is which and which one is real ultimate all this but is there, I'm, I'm sure I'm certainly they've come to you heiko certainly they've come to you and said heiko please tell us you know what is the secret and i know it's being done now uh and is getting more traction but it's still a very compared to other types of uh angelfish galare this you know the these ultimate varieties prove incredibly challenging to spawn in captivity and is that due to one i'm curious if if they're if they're ever begging you for the secrets you know two do you know these secrets and uh three what what are why is that fish so challenging whereas other angelfish they're breeding in an aquarium with total neglect and plastic things in it they're laying eggs <laughs> everywhere you know um, okay. Because surely this is prized information, right? That uh, how to breed no. this kind of fish. The problem number one is that people uh, do not read and do not inform. And people believe everything what's on the internet, what's been published. And everyone, every, every living person on this planet can publish anything in the internet without having to be checked. So this fish it was ross sarkolov who made me aware of it it was in 1971 i collected the first altums and i learned since then about this fish like no one else i know there are people who went back to the upper orinoco uh, one or two times and they think they know it all they have no idea this is the now, most no i gotta stop you right there heiko i have to know because this is a very i this is a very important fish to me. So you're pulling up the first time the net and there's Ultim Angel in there. I mean, what, what is this? Uh, I just need to know for a minute, you know, it's like the, you're like, oh, wow, there's some, this is, look at this. Uh, what, what, you know, I don't even know what I'm asking. I'm just, I'm trying to imagine 
do you know enough to be excited at that moment about the importance let's just say in the aquarium hobby about such a you know such a fish or it goes on to be so important and you're like yes i remember the day i pulled it up the first time i mean this is just so fascinating to me is it did you do you, is it something you know when it comes up and then you're seeing it coming out of the water and it's okay oh first, wow look what we've got here first of all you really have to know uh, enough about geography and geology, yes? And the real altum, the real altum only lives in one area, which never ever one discus has reached to get to this area. No altum lives in a place where a discus lives. And in addition to this, the altum has until this very moment, this very moment has never ever been bred. These are all lies. Okay. I'm writing a okay. big book about it. I hope to finish it next month. I have written yes. about it in my magazines. I have written about it in my books, but I'm reading, it's called Pterophyllum Altum by Heiko Blair. And I'm showing all the 19 different populations I discovered. But all populations of altums have one and the same identical piece of identification purpose, which no other angelfish have. I have written about 24 different angelfish populations in the Amazon basin. But an angelfish is never possible to go up or near a cataract or a waterfall, the same as discus. They cannot. The water is too much current. They cannot live. They cannot survive. Predators are there and will eat them. So no angel fish, like no discus, lives in or close a current or a waterfall. And all the altums, they also don't live in any of such areas they live like discus and i always compare the real alto angelfish with the real heckle discus symphysodon discus none of these two have ever been bred no one has ever been bred symphysodon discus and no one has ever been bred alto and now i come to the point why the reason I see clearly is that both come from extreme, extreme, extreme black waters. Black water, really black water. You don't find them in clear water, you don't find them. They sell now all over the world Orinoco Altum. There's no Orinoco in the Altum. In, there's no Altum in the Orinoco River ever. It's all wow. made up. They make yes. up all these stories only for money. Money, 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 money. This is all. And why? Because not only because I made it very popular, because I was the first to find it, also because to me, the altum, the real altum, is the most majestic of all aquarium fishes. Yes. There's nothing yes. similar. There's no yes. other angelfish or no other fish that swims similar to the alto. You can okay. see it with the young ones. I go to my friend in, in, uh, in Italy who has opened up a new shop 
And he said, look, uh, I'm selling these from the German breeder, but I know it's not Alto. Then I show them the wild ones here. There's a difference between day and night. The bred ones will never, ever show or have the behavior of a real Alto. This is a big problem. That's why I'm writing, writing this big book with an entire history and with 19 different populations. I went there again last September. I spent the one month in the upper Orinoco system. I went into all the Indian tribes, all the villages. I talked to all the, the Indians. I talked to, I caught everywhere the altums from that location with the parameters, with everything. So what is the problem is simply because the people pay so much money. The name became, uh, what should I say? The name became something that suddenly every aquarist in Europe and maybe in America and naturally in China, uh, in Australia, everyone wants Alto. So there are so many people now selling their angel fishes as Altums. And 90% of those are angel scalara from the Rio Negro. Because there's even scientific work. I don't know if you ever got to know Warren Burgess. He worked on this and, and he, uh, yes. he, 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 he proved that the Rio Negro Altum from Brazil is in uh, very close to the real Altum. But because they both grow very big, but the real Altum grows bigger, but the Rio Negro Scalara can also grow very big. And from a distance, they can look similar, but they are different. And the difference is because they got geologically divided. No one knows 1.2 or 12 million years ago. The difference between 1.2 or 12 million years ago, that they got separated. And they uh, formed, like it is with species, always, these formed their own way to survive, to live, and to their own morphology. Um, but people don't see. So is the real Scalare, is the, or is the real Altum, as you're describing, that's, that has not been ever bred in captivity, uh, even despite claims of such. Many. Uh, th th this, this fish is, are, are they available in the trade even? Is, it, or is the, what we call an altum in the trade? Yes, you uh, can. Something is slightly different, one of the, of, the, of the many species. When Venezuela, when Venezuela didn't have these political problems, I always get them out of Venezuela because they are mainly Venezuela fish. But uh, since Chavez and naturally now, uh, the only altums you can get out of Colombia um, because the Colombians from a place called Puerto Inirida, they cross over to Venezuela by boat and they uh, buy the altums from the Indian tribes. There are about 17 Indian tribes. They know very well that they can sell these fishes, so they collect them for the for those that buy them and bring them to Puerto Inirida. And uh, uh, the point is, they can never be in any area, like I said before, where there are rapids, 
or where there's waterfall. They only live far away from the main river system in lagoons, uh, in still water. This is where they live. And they have developed during their evolution. In their evolution, they have developed a form of swimming, swimming different from all other 24 types of angelfish from the Amazon basin. Because they had to survive uh, to get probably at those times, millions of years ago, over the cataracts, over the rapids, and so on. So they have a form of swimming which is unique to any fish. I have excellent photos of this. I bring it also in my book. They swim different from any other angelfish. Besides, there are so, other marks where you can recognize them. But it's a big market. Being... Get every single day. I mean, really, Jeff. Every single day no, on I internet, I get. They sent me photos. Is this an altar? Is this an altar? And you know, when I always tell them no, they they are mad at me. You know. Because they bought, they paid. What is, what is it? What is, what is the fish? What is the fish that we're calling Altum then? That's not like when you. What's what's usually in the photo? That that you the say most isn't fish Altum. you have in photos on internet and and the which are sold are first of all hybrids. There is there is one. It was a man who actually made videos with me. This goes back uh, into the 70s, 80s, uh, after I brought them on the market. Because before the 70s, there was no altum on the, in the aquarium right. hobby at all. I brought the first ones in because I collected and imported from Venezuela. Um, <clears throat> he insisted to breed that he, has, he was able to breed them, a German fellow. name is Linke. And we were actually friends. And then he made a book with a cover of a hybrid. And I told him, why do you put this fish? I can see immediately if it's a hybrid or if it's a wild fish. I see it immediately. But 99% of the people don't see it. They just think of the name and they don't verify. Anyhow. Uh, I said, how can you do this? This is a, you have a real Scalara on the cover. It's not an Altum. This is a fish from the Rio Negro, Brazil. Ah, I, this fish I received from you. I said, no, I never sold you this fish. Anyhow, this man hybridized them uh, Altum versus Scalara from the Rio Negro. And since then, there's many people, actually many. There's one in China I visited. There's uh, another German who's making a lot of money. He made so much money that he runs now Rolls Royce. Yeah, he sells them for a fortune because the people believe in it. They pay okay. two, three, four, five hundred euros for one alto, which is not an alto. So then and they get because the what the real altum again would not be easily not easily acquired. Well, yes, you can acquire them from today, the last ten years or so, from Bogota, Colombia, because they come to Inirida. Inirida sends them to Bogota, 
In Bogota are 45 exporters and they export them, uh, but they can only export them from 1st of July every year to the 31st of December. Okay. Because the government found out that this is a very valuable fish and they banned the collecting and exporting of this fish bef uh, during this period. After the, sure. of, after the 1st of January until the 1st of July cannot be exported, cannot be catched okay. and cannot be exported. So whatever people import from Colombia, uh, these are real alto because they, okay. ha they have no scalara. There's, they never went up there, no scalara. But there are some so difference in the, the populations. Origins. And I right. show the difference in the populations. Right, because I've bought fish as ultims before from suppliers, and I'm just going, nope, this is not, there's something different, you know, the, like the, the mouth area is not as upturned, you know, as more of a, it comes to more of a, this kind of, you, just the shape, you can just, I mean, I don't know what I'm looking at nearly like you do, of course, but I know I've paid big money many times for something <laughs> like, that. this is not quite right. <laughs> this, is this is really This is not quite right. No, and it's very. I have hundreds and hundreds of people say, uh, "You're gonna bring out this book. You're gonna revolutionize. You're gonna make a big yes. problem for many people." Seriously, we, Heiko, we we need you, man, to set the record I, I straight. Show, I show those bread albums. So. I have photographed them everywhere in China, in Germany, everywhere, and I show the real ones. One can see the difference if they look. I I still maintain that it had to be a mo in some way, maybe a personally momentous occasion to, you know, when you're first discovering a species like that, so majestic and beautiful and, you know, I mean, it's all exciting, but I'm sure there's those ones that just due to the, the sheer visual impact that they have, uh, their, their elegance and just the, the, just all the characteristics, you know, that, you know, as, as we, as, as aquarium hobbyists and aquarists and, uh, you know, that feel like we have a relationship and a connection to these fish, you know, that, that I just still find it. It's just the coolest thing, man, that you, you, you were the guy that pulled that out of the water for the first time. We can only get it because you found it. And that's just, uh, I don't know that is, that's just a, it's just really cool. I don't know how else to put it, man. It's a very, very important Thank you. Uh, thing to all of us. And I uh, try to sure. do this and, until uh, my last day. I can promise you. Ah, you're doing I it, man. It's, it's amazing. And that does, it brings me to one other, uh, there's two other categories that I, that I, I, just, I have to touch on. We don't, we don't have to go as long on them, but one of them is um, the, uh, the number of new species that have been found, or I would say, I mean, you've described, you've told me that, you know, you've found, I think, 11 new ones in the Amazon just this year. 25. Uh, I can say from 25, 25 last okay. months. Yeah. Or 11 just on the last trip. I think just in the last expedition, there was 11 or something, you know, something mm -hmm. like this It's big numbers. And so I can say too, and I've been commenting on this about the past couple of years uh, that, and I'm, I'm hoping for your insight on this is that uh, we have had access to, now we have one particular importer of fishes uh, here, it, it's a Rehoboth Aquatics. Uh, his name is Toyin. is a West African gentleman. I didn't know if you randomly happen to know this guy or not, but um, uh, anyway, he 
we have acquired more new, amazing Tetra species this year than, I mean, than in the past 10 or 20 years combined. It's been just a, every, every week he's coming up with a list of fish that, now I have a, a gentleman that works for me. Uh, he's in his mid-60s. Uh, he's been in the hobby, in the trade, giving talks and everything. You know, this, you know these guys, Heiko. They're like an encyclopedia of fishes and just, you know, they've dedicated their whole life to it. Um, and he's, he's just, his mind is blown every week. He's like, I've never seen, I've never heard of this fish. Some of them don't even appear to be fully described yet. Um, I sent you a picture of the one Nanostomus. You know, we're calling it super red pencil fish, but uh, that's yes. one example. I know. And uh, these, and there's some other Tetris too that Heiko, they're so amazing I know. that I'm going, how is it that this, if this fish was discovered any period of time ago, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, they would be huge in the hobby because they rival the very most colorful and in-demand tetras. Where have these fish been all this time? And all of a sudden, so many, there's not little gray fish, you know, that uh, a collector can appreciate. These are stunning fish that everybody's going, oh my gosh, uh, and they just seem to be coming out of everywhere. Is this because of the... I had a theory that maybe all of the environmental impact is it maybe condensing these fish into smaller areas and now they're and now there's more roads and is it easier to get to some of these fish that are so amazing but we're just now finding them um do you have any any I'm sure it's not a theory for you probably know exactly why there's so many incredible fish all of a sudden available I tell you why it's very easy. It's it's the point that they are building roads like never before into areas where no one could ever get to unless you had a helicopter or such a thing, which I did in many occasions. Um, they have uh, suddenly access to areas where there was no access uh, for decades, for all the time before. Um, they're building roads all across uh, South America, everywhere, and mainly the Chinese. No? The Chinese now building a 16-lane highway all over the Amazon rainforest. I mean, everyone is building roads everywhere. And, uh, you know, I was just... Have you seen the video which uh, those two young YouTubers have placed on YouTube about me? One yes, hour and seven minutes. Amazing. Okay, there best, was bet, one of the best videos out this year. Okay, we we went uh, with them to an area no one had been also before, and I went back to the same place now. At that time, we went down all day long on a on a boat to reach this Indian village where was this one creek I wanted to uh, look for, and uh, just last month I went back to that end of the road and the boat this time was a high-speed boat made 60 miles an hour I could make the whole distance within one hour what took us one day so I'm just explaining this to you how the progress is going in all these areas in a short time so all of a sudden yeah all, all of a sudden you can get there you and yes. so they're finding 
species. Do you know this one? The the second name is uh, Dicora, I think it is. It's a blue fish. It has a tail. The tail is almost like rummy nose, but it's blue, almost like uh, simulans or uh, green neon. Or uh, it's a blue fish yeah. with a checker tail. You have to send me um, a photo. You okay. Yes, yeah, stunning little fish. Incredible. We have this also. Again, we couldn't track down a name for it. We're just calling it cherry red tetra. I've seen it in some of the German uh, wholesalers have had the fish too. Is the, yes, yes. SP cherry was just being called because yes, it is yes. the reddest red yeah. in a freshwater aquarium I've maybe ever seen. They're almost glowing. You with know, a deep red color. Everybody, they they see this fish, they losing their mind. Do you I know where this fish comes yes, from? Yes, I collected this fish. Uh, I fi okay, okay. <laughs> I figured. And you know why no one wanted it at that time? Because they why all pre preferred the Serpere Tetra and, and the Sveglesi and uh, the other red ones. And then came Amandae, you know. Right. But, uh, because it doesn't get the red color unless it needs to be in a very ni a nice plants and the hiding places and it needs a certain environment for the red to really come out i found when we just have it in a holding tank in the retail you know for sale the the red is not it, it's not as intense but you get them very i have some in an aquarium just by themselves there's a the big group of them alone in you know a very nice uh planted aquarium with a nice water chemistry and the red is just it's just next level people just lose their mind when they see them and have everybody asks about them and i'm it i'm just shocked because sure enough heiko found this thing a long time ago <laughs> as i'm going you how know, is this fish not huge in the I industry to tell yeah. you uh the nanostomos you sent me the only email arrived yes. people are losing their mind when they see this i fish. know so exactly where it was found but it was not found by me it was bound by someone from Iquitos, but it was a place I always wanted to go because I have never been very, very far up the Nanai River, Nanai. And uh, Nanai River is uh, very close to Iquitos, but to go up there, you need at least, depending on the boat, two or three days. And there's a small, small creek and I always wanted to go there. I actually wanted to go there uh, when the pandemic started. I was invited, but then I couldn't go. And now they went and uh, I actually told them, you have to look all the way up in the Nanai River because no one has looked there before. And they did, and they find it, and it's nice. It's still unnamed, no name. Yeah. Because the Beautiful interest... little fish, and they're so... Their behavior, Heiko, is so unique compared to other, you know, what I call pencil fish. Uh, they are active and gregarious. They're eating out of my hand. You know, I'm working on the aquarium. They're not afraid at all. They're swimming around my arm. Uh, charming, just uh, very different. You know, they're not at all skittish or nervous as if they've never been... Uh, you know, bothered by something. I don't know. It's a very unique behavior. Yeah, People no. coming up to the aquarium, they're swimming right up to the glass. They want to, you know, like coming up thinking they're getting fit. Just a really unique as a pen in the most stunning red color. Uh, just incredible color. And I'm just going, wow, how could this fish, this would be huge in the, in the hobby by now if they had been around, I guess, long enough, uh, collected long enough or, or now bred in captivity. But, um, are they breed, it's are one they, of the many incredible ones. 
Are they exporting many? Do you know many arriving? No, I don't They're, think so. No. No. And when when our guy gets them is very small numbers. Yeah, exactly. And you know they're selling in the shops for thirty, forty, fifty dollars a piece. A piece. Um, <laughs> uh, for per fish, yes. Per fish. <laughs> <laughs> this cherry red tetras, you know, we would we would pay thirty dollars wholesale one. price for one. For, for one. Um, so trying you know trying to sell it for sixty, seventy, eighty dollars is not realistic. So you don't you know you maybe put it at fifty. Um, yeah. And, you know, you get the collector that buys a few of them. It's a shame because everybody sees them in the display tank and asks about them. And then, well, yes, we do have some for sale, but they're, you know, they're $50 for one. This is like a saltwater fish prices, you know. Yeah. But um, just so many new amazing uh, species coming out that I'm just in shock when the guys that I know that have been in it a long time and they're real students of, of species and, and the, all the histories. They have no idea, you know, they just, I've never seen this. I've never heard of this, but the roads seem to make some sense. I mean, are you seeing things where the environmental impact or the deforestation and all these problems are not just ruining habitats, but maybe kind of forcing species into other, maybe their, 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 their environment is shrinking in some kind of way. So there, or is there more, do they end up condensed or they just go extinct? I, I don't think this is uh, the case uh, at all. I think uh, what I have found out, and this is worldwide, not only in the Amazon, is that every time I go back to a place which was destroyed, uh, that the species is extinct. It's not found there anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's they the, didn't move somewhere no, else. They're just no. gone. Because yeah. take, for instance, you're talking about this pencil fish. Now, there were already two very colorful nanostomus or pencil fish discovered in the Nanai affluence. The first was Morton Talley, after the, uh, the Austrian uh, man who moved to Iquitos, married, but he in the meanwhile just passed away. And he was actually... He actually had a business here in, in Austria, and he was my client. And one day he came to my office and said, I'm going to move to Peru. I said, okay, but be careful. Anyhow, he found in the Nanai system going up, I said, there's very little discovered there. You have to find, you can't find new species. So he found this one. It was named in his honor, Morton Tallery. And then a little further up, they found another pencil fish, also Nanostomus. It was also very red. I mean, they're both very red, but this is different, and they called it, uh, they named it Rubro, Rubro Caudatus or Rubro Pinis. So I said, if they are find in the lower Nanai already two new Nanostomus, they will find many more upstairs, and this will not be the last one. But or they didn't have a boat to go up there. Secondly, it, the fuel price now has gone so high up and they all have only boats. So they need to pay a huge price for the fuel. I mean, a gallon sure. now uh, where I was uh, end of November, the gallon of fuel was already uh, $15. Mm. How much right. in America now? Two or three, four. 
Right. So it's, uh, so, it's very costly for these people to go to these remote places. But there are fish in the Michael, remote places they, because they're still not all deforested, the deforestation. Yes. But it's taking place so fast. They found petroleum, they found gas, they're destroying everything. Peru is really damaged. Oh, terrible. Wow. Yeah. No, no, displacement. So, no, uh, I do not believe in this at all. The fish, the, the fish. They're just, they're just gone. Yeah, the fish like their habitat. I know, I, you know, I catch so many fish. I know if I one place in a creek or in a lake, I find a species. I always go back to the same place, and I only find it there. The fish have their so have their place. This is what most people don't know. Naturally, there are some fish that only live on the surface. On the top, you probably know the name butterfly fish, Carnigella, uh, sure. Gasteropelicus. Those have immense distribution because they live on the top and they jump. And when the flood comes, when okay. the water goes up 15 meters, yeah. then they can go they away. Can move. But the small fishes, no, they cannot. Yeah. yeah. If they would move, they would go. The only other thing I wanted to... Yeah, go yeah. ahead. So I, I know I've kept you a long time, and this has it's been amazing. There's one other category that I'm just personally really so interested about, and uh, you can be brief about it. And I'm sure you're going to be like, Jeff, why do you why are you asking me this? But um, just in terms of what what do you eat <laughs> when you're out there on an expedition? Like what what is the uh, how I am in, in, just in awe of the extent. You're out there for a month sometimes uh, in the Amazon. I mean, we're the average person living in the city. <laughs> we're imagining the mosquitoes, the, 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 the insects, the, the, the weather, the heat. Uh, I mean, surely you've got this down. You don't, it's second nature to you at this point, you know, but uh, is this just, well, obviously it's skills and sort of, I'm sure patterns or habits that you've adapted over the many years going out there to where you just know what to do. But uh, what what can you tell me briefly about that side of an expedition, all the collecting and everything else aside, straight survival out there, Heiko. I can't imagine the near-death experiences you've had over the many decades in areas where humans... For the most part, there's no record of humans even ever gone there before. And there's Heiko out there for weeks and months. Uh, it's fascinating. And truly the most interesting man in the world here. <laughs> so please, uh, what, what can you tell me about your adaptation? Okay, first of all, <clears throat> I told you in the beginning, I don't watch television. I don't believe in any of this, what they show, especially about nature. Um, what... I would say 99.99% of the people on this planet do not understand nature. I mean, yes. when I talk about nature, I talk about untouched nature, wild nature, yeah, where no one lives, as you just mentioned, where no one goes. It is the most secure place on the planet. I always 
in all my conference, I, I always see one of the same thing. I say, to stay one year in the jungle where I go is not as dangerous as if you cross the street in front of your house just one single time. Yeah. That's more dangerous. Okay. The people that. make a misinterpretation about jungles because of the movies, because of the films. You know, I took Amanda with me when she was age four. It took me a long time. I could convince my wife. I said, I was with four, so I want to take our daughter with four. So I only was able to convince her when I took her to Blackwater River. Because in Blackwater rivers are no mosquitoes, zero. They cannot survive there. So if you're in Blackwater rivers, you have no mosquitoes. You have practically no insects. So there's nothing. It's pure nature. Um, she made with me six expeditions. One day she came to me when she was in her second class at school age seven, she said, Papa, you do so many conferences around the world, I want to do a conference in my school. And I'm only mentioning this because in the meanwhile, she did three, she's now 12, and uh, she starts every conference with one and the same words. She said, kids, first of all, danger, fear does not exist. It doesn't exist. It is all made up in your head or in the media or whatever. And she was six times in the jungle and never anything happened. She walks ahead of the Indians. She walks ahead of everyone because she knows there's no danger. There's zero danger. She hardly ever has seen a snake. If you see, she walks away. There's no animal that attacks you. Naturally, you should always look where you walk. I mean, like on the street, you should always look where you walk. That's all. Yeah. But there's no snake that will attack you or bite you. There's no crocodile in the rivers. She caught, every three seconds, she caught a piranha. She swing from the first day on between the piranhas because she knows the piranhas will not attack man, never, ever. This is only in the movies. Um, there's no fish that you have to be fear, have to be afraid of. Yes, you have to be, if you go in a lagoon and you see big electric eels, you know, eels maybe one yard long, they can give you a tremendous shock. This is, I had this already. Because they have 850 volts. So you better swim around them. Don't go where they are. But there's no, no, no nothing that uh, you should be fear of. Now, what food is concerned, usually I'm, you know, still go to most of the places in Amazon, also like now in the Congo uh, or uh, other places where there's no many roads. So I go by boat. So I have to, I take, uh, I have a very limited provision I take with me on food. But normally I eat the fish in nature. The two Indian guides I had with me this time uh, on the three expeditions last month, while I was collecting my fish, photographing and so on, they were collecting fish for us to eat. 
So we ate very much fish in the morning, at lunch, in the evening. And uh, you will not, if you go to untouched areas in the jungle, like this time, those two guys that were with me, they couldn't believe we found so many fantastic fruits. Fruits no one knows. Delicious fruits. Oh, I'm sure. So you have, the jungle has everything as long as it's not destroyed. You know? Yeah. I have, uh, I've never had a problem. Then I have always with me black tea. I suggest everyone to have black tea because on the 980 some expeditions, most of them I had people with me and never anyone got sick. I gave them black really? tea. Yeah. And you okay. know, I, I never, okay. I never. Because I'm picturing some night where you're you're curled up and the the you know they've got some weird jungle no, sickness and, for and something. What, no, I never get sick. I, I mean, I have four malaria parasites, but I have to live with it. But there's no no one can get malaria. This is the the interpretation of Bill Gates and all these people talk about malaria. They right. have no idea about malaria. They have no idea about malaria. They just talk. Malaria, you cannot get uh, malaria parasite only under one condition. If you or like me or you are in a place where one person has a malaria attack, I already know when I have my attack. I had 58 already. So when they get the attack, a mosquito, I don't care which mosquito, comes and bites you. In the two hours only you have the attack. Sometimes three maximum. And if this mosquito did bite you and then bites another person, then it's transmitted the malaria parasite. It's the only way. So In that two-hour window. Yeah. Where do you get malaria? You get malaria in Mumbai. In all the big cities, in all the places where are hundreds and thousands and millions of people, you could get malaria if you stay in an Indian village. I never stay. I always go in my tent. I just one one single time on this last trip, I went with the two guys. They wanted to see a malaka, Indian malaka, and the Indians gave us their malaka to live. But <laughs> the place was infested by cockroaches. There were oh, so wow. many cockroaches. I said, I, I could never stay here. I went because of the yeah. two guys. But, uh, and I never take water. The people always take cans and tons of water into the jungle. I mean, are you insane? Drink the water from the river. I always drink, and Amanda, since age four, drinks the water from nature. But naturally, if the water is too silty, yeah, like Orinoco or like uh, the rivers that transport a lot of silt, then you just take the water and boil it. And as I drink tea, black tea in the morning and the evening, uh, the water is always boiled. And with the boiling of water, you kill everything. So that's sure. all you have to do. And this is the people they take. I have taken people with me. They have boxes full of medication. I never ever take any medicine with me. No, none. Not only because I don't believe in medicine, also because uh, uh, 
I know they are only made there to make money. It's like, right. I'm not going to talk about That's... coronavirus now because right. you know, COVID-19 yeah, no, this is really terrible. Right. Yes, I mean, the whole thing. They, they invented, they invent everything but to, just to make money. And this is all about this. I'm, I'm completely, you know, I was in the Congo uh, one month uh, and I came back in Italy. Everyone has his own doctor. No? Healthcare in Italy is zero cost. No? It's all free. And you must have one doctor uh, which is there for you anytime you need him. I never need him. But uh, when I came back from Congo, she said, well, come here, we're going to make a test with you. And... Uh, they tested everything from top to bottom, you know, it took a week. And, uh, and then she calls me up and she says, you know, uh, we thought about Ebola, we thought about all these things they tell you, uh, uh, in your tests, I can only suggest to you, go back to the Congo. You come back healthier than ever before. Right. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, it's fascinating, fascinating. It's, and this from someone who's been, you know, in the well, exact opposite environment, the place we would think would be the most filled with possibilities of sickness or viruses or whatever is, uh, it's so true. It's just the opposite. You know, it's more dangerous. You're right. I live in the city walking across the street is, uh, probably more dangerous than walking across the, the, the Creek. Definitely. In, in the deep jungle. Beside this, point, so. you know, uh, I never had a cold in my life. And now I'm here in Austria, and the hospitals are full with people of influenza. What do you call the cold? What do you call it? Grippe? Uh, or the flu. The or flu. Right. The, you call the flu. Right. Yeah. yeah. So here everyone has a flu. I don't understand. Well, Heiko, what, I can't imagine. Is, I mean, I. What are these what people the, doing? science and i know this is a real emerging field out there uh the study of the human microbiome in the gut and you man you would be a really because now they're even doing things and you know it's it sounds i don't know how it sounds but it it's a legitimate therapy that's going on where they're doing like a fecal transplants and they're really just trying to move the beneficial microbes from one person to another this kind of thing but just the study of the microbiome of somebody of a human being like Heiko Blair, who's has this, I mean, the immersion in the deep nature for the, the whole, since four years old, uh, I think would be so fascinating, you know, just to know what that is that you, where you haven't ever had a cold and you can go there and not experience any, you're drinking the water from the river and every, it's just so foreign to the average uh sort of <laughs> suburban or urban uh human I'm these sure. days i think yeah. it would just be fascinating to know yeah. what is what is the what is the the gut flora and microbiome of uh, such a human being look like i think i think it's fascinating but um tell them to invite anyway me to pay me <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yes no you should be yeah. well compensated for yeah. this contribution to science yeah. But uh, anyway, Iko, this okay. has been absolutely incredible. Uh, I'm glad we finally got to connect here. I know we had a little bit of technical difficulties, <laughs> oh, but here yeah. we are. 
uh, this, this, but it's... this this works no? i can see yeah for okay. sure for sure Different. so but fascinating discussion i we could go on for hours and hours and hours uh, <laughs> definitely, so yeah. i'm i'm definitely gonna want to do this with you again at some point maybe after that autumn book comes out yeah uh, the, the angelfish yes. book is one of an immense interest to me as as all your books are and all your publications but that one in particular just because it's if i had to pick a favorite fish uh the ultimate angel yeah would be it's, a, it. it's, it's the a, most majestic fish it, yes to me. and to get to speak to the man who actually yeah pulled the first one up and identified it and contributed it to the hobby is just a is just a big deal to me and it's a real honor and um i just think you're one of the most important figures that we have still around to enjoy the stories and the contributions man and that you're still okay. out there doing it is uh just um it's it's an inspiration is what it is man. next really, month really i'm going uh to um the border argentina bolivia with some friends from argentina they are just in qatar uh, that's why i had to see the match also uh into a mountain area where no one has been. So he has a four wheel drive. So I hope we can get into the areas I want to go. And uh, sure. in uh, already established is also the expedition to Angola, 1st of April. And there are a few others, India and so on. I'm sure. But tell me I'm something, sure. maybe you can help me. I have, um, after 28 years, I lost my secretary. She just said from one day to another, Mr. Blair, I have been doing books and magazines and all your trips uh, for those 28 years, but I want to do something else for the rest of my life. <laughs> she left me. <laughs> so, no. so I'm trying to find someone who can... Uh, continue helping me sure. because all my books have been yeah. published. Uh, I published, I written and published all my books myself. I don't want anyone to change yeah. any word of it, you know. So I need a person that knows the computer system, Quark Express, desktop publishing. We'll put the word out. Please. We're going to put the word out. Thank you. For sure. Thank you very and, much. Uh, because these days, I go, you know, a lot of these things can be done remotely remotely I mean, they don't even have to yes. be they don't necessarily have to be right exactly, there exactly uh, the files can be usually they could be any they could be anywhere i offered her very, to very do efficient. it remotely but she didn't want to do it anymore In 28 years yeah <laughs> she's, she's ready to so, have a few yeah. days doing something else yeah. but uh yeah. no we'll we'll put the word out and i'll definitely okay, thank include you. that and, and give in, my best regards to here. mike and you or mike any one of you should come with me on expedition to get the real thing I think you should do it's it. It's got to happen. It's, it's got to happen. You know, and we, uh, Mike yeah, tells been... me this for at least a decade or more. Sure. But sure. I, I think you have too much work. You cannot leave the that, place. That's now. been a little bit of the problem, but yeah. we're we're reaching a point where some of these experiences we need to we need to do. We need to just you know we, need to, normally we, we don't want any regrets about this stuff. Ten it days is so unique. Ten days or two weeks. That's all it needs. Fourteen days maximum. And it sounds like I needn't be concerned about no, you don't need what to, to eat, no, what you, to drink. You just uh, need to be concerned. I don't need to get a to, bunch of uh, various shots and things to just come do this. Just need to yes. be concerned, trusting me. That's all. Yes, 
Okay. Doing what uh, I see. You're definitely. Okay. It, you're you you're the inspiration, Ike. Okay. If you're out there okay, <laughs> after all you. these years <laughs> doing it, I definitely trust you. Okay. But uh, it's been a great conversation, same, Ico. Same thank here. You. Thank, thank you. you so much for okay. your time, man. Thank okay. you. Now I look forward best. to speaking to you again. Okay. okay. Bye, same bye. to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.